everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Dave Stovall. I'm your host, and we have been working our way through the track sessions that we had from the 2021 National Disciple Making Forum. Today's episode features the Bonhoeffer Project. We've got Dan Lights. He's a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Oceanside, California. And we've got the whole Bonhoeffer team. They're going to be starting off with a message from Dan talking to us about a little thing called the pebble in your shoe. Then halfway through after the break, you're going to hear from each person on the team about their personal stories and about their testimonies and how they got discipled and why they disciple people. This is a great episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And I want to ask you, please look past the inconsistencies in the audio. This was a live track session with one microphone in the room. So it just kind of is what it is. All right, y'all, let's jump in and hear from Dan and the Bonhoeffer Project. Just wanted to take a moment and welcome you guys. Thank you guys for traveling from all across the country, uh, all across the nations, uh, to be here with us today. Um, for those of you who are wondering, um, I am Dan Lights. Uh, I'm a, a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel of Oceanside in Oceanside, California. It's a beautiful suburb of San Diego, and uh, it's a, a rough place to live, but somebody somebody has to do it. And so uh, thank you, God, for choosing me. Um, uh, just for clarification, and again, just wondering, you know, I know people... Uh, know and associate the Bonhoeffer Project and what we do here with Bill Hull. Uh, Bill has been the, uh, he was the co-founder of our ministry along with Brandon Cook. And uh, just recently he stepped down from that role and I've assumed the role as uh, leading the Bonhoeffer Project. He was supposed to be here with us this week, but uh, through circumstances and uh, airline craziness, uh, he was booked on American Airlines and they canceled his flight. So uh, he's not here with us, so we, uh, we miss him desperately, but uh, show must go on. So uh, before we dive into what we're going to be talking about today, would you guys join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for your spirit, your grace. Um, thank you, God, that there are so many, as we see evident today, that are hungry to make disciples that make disciples. Thank you for this and all of the other organizations here, God, championing a disciple-first mentality. Thank you for discipleship.org for putting this on. And God, I just, I pray for each and every one here uh, who, who are here and, and, and eager to say, God, what, what do you have for us? Uh, that you would minister to them, that you would give them the grace and the eyes to see exactly what you want them to see. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Why don't you guys grab your Bibles? I want to start with a little scripture here today. Uh, the session that we're talking about is the pedal in your shoe. And I'm going to talk about a little bit from scripture, but then I'm going to be talking about some of my own experience not just uh, in ministry, but also here two years ago. And I'll get to that in a moment. If you grab your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, again, it's one of these uh, phenomenal stories that we see in Scripture where Jesus is confronting an individual who is seeking to learn something. And uh, this young man, and listen, all of us know this story. We're very familiar with this story, but... We're going to look at it in a different light today. So Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 18, we're talking about the rich young ruler. And this ruler asked him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, the young man said, all these I have kept from my youth. I want to stop there and just focus on what this man was doing. He had seen Jesus moving around the countryside, watched the miracles, saw the presence of Jesus, and thought, I'm going to go justify myself to this man. I'm going to get Jesus to affirm that what I do is good enough. And so he went to Jesus and he said, good teacher. He was patronizing him, if you will. Good teacher, because we've heard that you're good. What must I do? And Jesus said, here's the, the law. Here's what you need to fulfill. And he said, self-justifying, all of these I do. I'm, I already got this. I'm a shoe-in. But then Jesus, doing what Jesus does best, says, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. What Jesus did in that moment was he took a little pebble and he put it in this man's shoe. Now, the interesting thing about a pebble is when, when grouped together, like we had Cindy, our chief executive, uh, I'm sorry, chief, chief operation, COO, your coup, right? That's the coup. We figured that out the other day. When she bought all these, these are actually pretty. They're almost decoration, right? You can spread them around a candle and it looks nice. You can get a ton of these and put them in a planter and it makes the planter look nice. But you get one of these in your shoe and not so nice. We've all had that moment, whether we're walking along the beach or whether we're uh, just, we had to walk down a gravel road and, and for some reason or another, just the tiniest little pebble got right in our shoe. And you have this moment of, what do I do with this knowledge? Do I, do I just keep trucking? You know that the longer that you keep that in there, the longer that you ignore that, the more problem it's going to cause you down the road. The longer you allow that to fester and rub, you're going to get, at least get a blister. If not, you're going to get an open wound that's going to even take longer to heal because it's in a spot that's just going to keep rubbing. The interesting thing with this rich young ruler is, is I see it we don't know exactly what happened to him after this story there's not some great culmination and we see in Luke chapter 26 this young man this ruler came back to Jesus and said I, I pulled the rock that you gave me out of my shoe and I sold everything and here I am I'm following you but I would like to think that this stone that Jesus plopped into his shoe messed him up to the point where eventually he had to say I got to deal with this. This pebble, in my opinion, represents what many of us, what many of us are doing here today. We've had a pebble placed in our shoe, whether it be by someone we love, by the Holy Spirit. And I would say nearly every church represented here or every church that I've ever been to, I would say this, everyone believes that discipleship is important. I've never been or talked to one pastor or leader who when you say discipleship doesn't say I don't think so every pastor every leader every church has it in their bylaws 
has it as our brother was saying from the stage, has it on the side of the box. It's there. It's written. It's part of your charter of your church. Discipleship is something we know needs to be done. But is it happening? When you take a deep dive, though, what we'll see is in most modern churches today, discipleship is merely lip service to the Great Commission. Let me give you a little bit of a background for me and kind of what brings me to this moment. My experience with this pebble is really what brings me even to this moment here right now. In 2018, well, let me even back up further. I've been serving at my church, Cabin Chapel of Oceanside now for going on 14 years. For the first 11 years of that, I was under the leadership of my former senior pastor, Mike. In December of 2018, Pastor Mike, my beloved friend and pastor, died of kidney failure. He wasn't that old. He's uh, 53 years old. Problem was, he, at a very early age, when he was 12 years old, inherited a, just, no one even really knows how he got it, but he got this rare blood disease called aplastic anemia. It's a blood cancer, if you will, and, and he had to go in for all these treatments when these treatments were very experimental. And he ended up having so many blood transfusions and, and, and he, he went through chemotherapy and radiation and it just destroyed his body. He was supposed to be, the estimates showed, 6'2 and about 220. He was supposed to be a big linebacker looking dude. When I met him, as I knew him, he was 5'5 five, five and weighed about a buck ten, fully wet. Something had changed along that, but then in December of 2018, again, he breathed his last because basically since that moment when he was 12, when he was diagnosed with this rare disease, he had gone through so much torment in his body that eventually he ended up having to have a liver transplant. That liver transplant, he had to take medication for to make sure that his body didn't reject the liver and all of those drugs ended up killing his kidneys. So there I was at the end of his life, the board called me and said, Dan, we want you to lead this church. And so I had what I would consider, what I like to call affectionately, a mid-ministry crisis. A crisis of looking at my fellowship, looking at the church that God had called me to steward over, looking at the people that God had entrusted me with. And I looked at them and I thought, God, what do you want me to do with them? And that wasn't a, a, a negative response, right? That was... God, what have you called me to do? Because again, for those of us in ministry, those of us who go to church, we understand that we've got this idea of what church is and what it should be. As we were even talking about this morning, just this kind of thing, you get this vignette of a sermon, you get something that's got some quotables, something you can tweet, something you can clap at, something that makes you feel good. In my context, our church was all about the ministries. Multiply ministries. The more ministries, the more nuanced, the more people liked it. You want to do underwater basket weaving? You get a ministry. You want to, you know, make Martha Stewart crafts? You get a ministry. And what it did is it made people happy, but I don't think it made anybody holy. So I got to this point in my ministry where I took when Jesus said, those who preach and teach the word, God, Paul said, those who preach and teach the word will face a stricter judgment I started taking that to heart. I'm like, uh-oh, right? Anybody got that pucker? Like, whoa, that's a tough one. 
And I started to rationalize and think, what are we doing? And so I bared down in the scriptures and I read what Jesus said. And I tell you the imperative that Jesus said on the day that he was ascending into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples. It was the imperative. Now do what you learned from me. And so I knew that I had to make disciples. And then I came here. Uh, it's so interesting. It's, it's apropos. It's poetic, if you will. I went to a brother in Christ that I knew for many years, and I told him about this kind of epiphany. He said, man, you got to come with me to the National Disciple Making Forum. And I said, there's such a thing? And he said, yeah, man, it's great. It's like-minded people just like you who understand that we need to make disciples. If, we're, if, if the church is going to suffer through any sort of hardships, we need to make disciples. And this is pre-pandemic. And so we came. Two years ago, I came here. Two years ago, I came into a session by Bill Hall and the Bonhoeffer Project, and I sat right there. Two years ago. The pebble in my shoe messed me up. I finally had the wherewithal to pull off my shoe and examine what was in there. But I tell you the truth, that is probably the hardest part is to examine. Right? Scripture talks about that. You see it all throughout the, the Psalms, right? That, that Selah, that meditate upon these things, the examine yourself. For pastors, for leaders, it's hard for us to examine ourselves. Because, listen, I don't know about you, but I love to be right. Anybody else like to be right? I love to be right. Oh, so good to be right. Because even when I find out I'm wrong, I want to find out that I'm wrong so I can be right again. But it's very difficult for us as leaders to recognize I may be wrong. I may have talked about discipleship. I maybe have talked a good game. I maybe used the word discipleship, but in my context and who I'm ministering to, I don't know if they're any closer to Christ Jesus than the day that they met me. That was my crisis moment. I got here, I sat down, I talked with Sandy, who's here in the front. Come on. Hey, you, yeah, you know. And I, I remember, and you, maybe there was a statement that messed you up as well. There's a statement out there in front on one of our banners that says, the gospel you preach, the gospel you proclaim determines the disciples you make. That to me, because I love the gospel. Any gospel lovers in here, right? Y'all love the gospel, right? It's why we're here. The gospel was preached first, and we're here because someone told somebody who told somebody that eventually led to us. The gospel became the crucial piece for why I needed to understand what this pebble was doing. And so that's what the Bonhoeffer Project did for me. And again, I'm not, this isn't my commercial for the Bonhoeffer Project. This is simply me and the work that God did through this pebble that was placed in my shoe. This pebble that was placed in my shoe, I believe it was Holy Spirit oriented. It was divine that God gave me this holy discontentment to allow me to examine the gospel that I preach. Now, some of you are probably like me and say, wait a second, I don't preach a false gospel. Let me give you kind of a, a just a bare illustration if you would just entertain me for a moment. If I was to say right now, I'm gonna hand out a three by five card to each and every one of you here, and I'm gonna give you all a pen. If I said, I need you all right now to define for me the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And we took that, no names, we just took them all at the end. How many of you think they're all going to be the same? How many think even 50% will be the same? Right? See, the problem is our language. See, we can say gospel all day. We can talk to each other in the language of Christ Jesus, but totally miss one another in what we're saying. This is part of what needs to happen, that we've got to get our language. Even at the National Disciple Making Forum, I came thinking I knew what a disciple was. I was wrong. And I had to admit that. And so began my journey to discover what biblical discipleship was. So began my journey of examining the gospel that I preach, teach, and proclaim. So began my journey of recognizing sometimes we got to take off our shoe, pull out that pebble, and say, what is this? Because the last thing we want is for Jesus to come back and look at his church and be like, that's not what I told you to do. We're making big, big buildings and beautiful temples, if you will. But are the people more beautiful than the day that Jesus gave them and entrusted them to us? That is the gist of the pebble in my shoe. I can say that by the end of the process that I had with the Bonhoeffer Project, I was so fully convinced about the call of making disciples. And again, I know some of you might already be there, so it's kind of a moot point. But the issue became to me, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in session two if you hang around, is the intentionality of it. Really going upstream, and we'll get to that in, in a moment. But the intentionality of the Bonhoeffer Project is what made what we did unique. The intentionality of examining the gospel, which we'll talk about in session two. So what I want to do right now, and what I want to open it up for all of us, I'm going to invite my panel up on stage. If you guys would come on stage behind me. We're going to open this up. I'm going to do some questions for my panel up here. These are all team members of the Bonhoeffer Project. And once we're done with that, we will open it up to some questions from you. Because we understand and recognize that, you know, one of the things that we do is we like to answer questions because we know there's a lot of them out there and we want to get a little nuanced. We want to get specific with those questions because we think it's very important. So let me, I'm going to just hand a mic. Um, I'm going to start with Denny here. Sorry, you, you sat in front of the seat here first. I want to talk to these ones, each one of us, and I'll be honest, I think all of us have had a crisis moment in our ministries. I don't know if it's as big as it was with me, and maybe you're, to be honest with you, going through it right now, but I want you to see that if you're studying the scriptures, you're going to have crisis. You're going to start examining your life. The Bible will punch you in the face via the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, what do you do? You bob, you weave, you say, no, 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 that's not for me. How do you handle that crisis moment? Dan, why don't you tell us about that crisis moment for you? Thanks, Dan. Well, my, my crisis moment came in about 2000 and uh, about 2010. And I, I just came to realize that I had been living up to the expectations of not only the congregation, but also my superiors, my, my district superintendent and the bishop in my tribe, that's what my superiors were called. And so I got patted on the back for the job that I was doing and all the boxes were checked. The attendance, yes. The buildings, yes. And the cash, 
And I didn't realize that I had become unknowingly the CEO of a religious group of people called the local church. And so I, I had this, this experience of the four Ds, and you know what the four Ds are, uh, that discontent, discontentment, and then the dissatisfaction, which led to discouragement, which finally ended up with desperation for me. And I realized that this is not what I signed up for. And so, uh, through a series of circumstances, uh, I came upon a group of men that came into my life, and I began to, to pour into them what God had poured into my life through a series of uh, years. And I began to go back to the primary calling that God had called me to, and that's to, to develop people, to disciple people, to become more like Jesus. But it was, it was the reality that I had, I had not, I was not doing what Jesus had truly called me to, but I just got swept up into, am I the only one here that has ever experienced this? I just got swept up into the system and I was the CEO rather than a disciple-making pastor. As Bill puts out in his, as he describes it in his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor, I was a generic pastor. I was living up to the expectations of all, of all the folks out there. And they were satisfied with me, but inside I was done. Ed. I'm going to take, I've had several of those moments, just for the record, but I'm going to take it from a little different perspective. Gallup said one of the hardest things to do when doing a poll, you know the Gallup polls, is to find a person that describes himself as average. Nobody wants to be the average guy. Well, I'm going to tell you, I am the average guy. I'm him, okay? <laughs> and uh, I looked in, in Acts, and uh, Philip has been preaching to all the Samaritans, and he's having a great time, and God says, hey, I tell you what, I want you to go meet this guy on the road. And he goes and he, and he meets this eunuch on the road and he runs beside his chariot and he hears him reading scripture from Isaiah because he'd been in Jerusalem worshiping. And he just poses a question. He goes, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I? Somebody doesn't explain it to me. That's discipleship. But I got to tell you something. When I, was, when I became a Christian, in other words, when I had the transaction and I was baptized and I was uh, got my get out of hell free card, I was given a Bible and, and said, hey, you need to read the Bible. Hey, just start somewhere in, like Matthew. Right. Okay. It was a King James Matthew version oh. and oh. 17 verses of begat and I be gone. <laughs> Anybody? Come on, begat and I be gone. And I be gone because I'm like, <laughs> I, why? Why am I reading this? I don't, I don't even know who had who. I don't even know what they're saying. I don't even understand this English. And I was never a disciple. And the, the crazy thing about that is, I never got that until one man came over and said, Hey, have you ever thought about... And I said, What are you talking about? Well, let's talk. He talked to me about a variety of subjects. One time he asked me if we were tithing. Hey, are you and Jane tithing? Yeah, we, we do when we can. You have members like that. I don't know. Come on. And I said, he said, you really don't understand tithing. So let me talk to you about that. He discipled me. And that was a, a huge moment for me. But when I became a professional, a minister, 
One of the things that we say all the time is, hey, you guys got to be in the Word. You got to be in the Word. You got to be in the Word. And I had a guy stop me in the hall one time. He said, man, y'all talk about reading the Bible all the time. Why? And we forgot the why. Mm. Why do we read the Bible? What is it for? Do you remember, we used to have little envelopes where you checked off, hey, I'm present. I've read my Bible every day. I've done my thing. I'm going to tell you, those checks don't mean a thing. And that's when it came to realize I needed a different way. And I ran into this group of guys, starting with this guy over here, and uh, they were thinking the same way I was thinking, and it, and it changed the way I do ministry. You got, you got it gone. Right. That's a good one. Yeah, the, the baguettes are always tough. So I... Uh, Who are you? Uh, oh, I'm Cindy Perkins. There you go. I, get to, I get to be with this great bunch of folks now for about four or five years, but... So my crisis moment was a little bit different. I got thrust into uh, women's ministry after I told my uh, boss that I didn't, didn't like women and I really didn't want to do women's <laughs> ministry. He says, why don't you like them? I said, because they're sniping and gossipy and full of drama. And he said, perhaps you're supposed to help them not be that way. And I'm like, well, how on earth did we do that? Right, and so I did not grow up in the church, had never been discipled, so I didn't understand what that was about. But what I did understand as I began to minister to women, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't like women then, but women are the, the passion of my life now to enable and empower women uh, to be who God has created you to be, ladies. But um, I, what I realized was most women have not been discipled. Titus 2 tells us that we, as the older women, and it was terrible the day that I had to put myself in that category. The older women, right, are to be teaching the younger women how to love their husbands and how to care for their families and those, those things that God uh, gets glory and honor when we do it well. And I realized that that wasn't happening in the church, but I also knew that I could not do that on my own. And I knew that if we didn't help women understand who they are in Christ, if we didn't help women understand how they could serve in, in the local body, in their giftings and their wirings and their God-given calling, that the church was going to disintegrate. Because 68% of, of statistically of people who sit in churches are female. And so I began to uh, think about that. I decided perhaps if I was going to leave this bunch of women, I should go to college and learn how to do that well. And so I went to Bible college, got my degree in uh, Christian ministries. And I was in a discipleship and evangelism class that when I think back on it now, I'm like, I don't even know how they could call that discipleship and evangelism. But I read Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. And that pebbles started make it now I'm a little hard-headed so it took me a few more years than it probably took most everybody else but I began to think about that and what do we do how is it that we change the world because church I was on church staff and I was on church staff for 20 years and in 20 years I did not see significant transformation in our church well really for about 10 of those years because then I was Bent. And uh, so I had gone to an exponential conference one year in Orlando, picked up Bill's book, Conversion and Discipleship, read it, and I said, this guy thinks like I do. So the next year I went back to exponential and sat in all of the sessions, and then he said, this, this lady didn't go away. And I simply asked the question, where are your women? And Bill gave me the answer, we don't have any women 
in discipleship. And I'm like, something can't, that can't be. And that was, that was the moment for me that I said, this is going to change how I do life and what I do in life. Uh, and we began, we began this journey uh, with the Bonhoeffer Project, but initially it was because I couldn't get women to serve. And I don't know if you know this or not, but discipled people serve. If you have trouble getting people to volunteer in your children's ministry, discipleship is the way you get that to happen. Because disciple people serve, disciple people give, disciple people pray. And I, I didn't see that happening in the church. And I had not been discipled, so I knew that I had to do something. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. The hand that rocks the cradle rocks the church. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Anybody from Phoenix, Arizona? Really? Oh, Scott. Yeah, buddy. It's hard to get saved in Arizona because it's already really hot. Are you guys out there? Hello. So I got uh, led to Christ off the ASU campus, Arizona State University campus, in my fraternity room. And the guy that led me to Christ was part of the campus crusade, now called Crew. That was Sunday morning. He led me to Christ. Tuesday night, he took me to the meeting. And uh, went in there, wind build stand on the wall, and I understood, man, I, I got assigned a guy who met with me, and uh, I didn't realize what he was doing, but he was discipling me in the basics of the faith, but it, it always had an end in mind. Sandy, I'm discipling, we're studying the word, memorizing it, we're learning how to pray so that you can win your fraternity brothers to Christ and build them up so they, where they get sent out. So it was clear that mantra, wind build send, was in my head. Uh, then I went back to my local church on a holiday to tell him what had happened to me, and my my local pastor, his eyes just kind of glazed over, like he didn't understand what he was talking about. And uh, as I sat in those pews over the holidays, I didn't see wind-built sin on the wall. You know, I saw a sit soaked sour. So uh, I told myself, whatever I do, I'll never be a pastor guy. But uh, I got involved with the Young Life Ministries and Young Life. We go on high school campuses and win kids to Christ and disciple them up so they could reach their friends, taking them to some of the greatest youth camps in the world to do that. And uh, the Lord kept calling me back into the local church. So uh, then I went in the local church. I did youth ministry. Dan's an old youth ministry guy. And in youth ministry, you can do discipling. We'd win students to Christ and build them up their faith so they could reach out to their friends. 
So discipleship, which is part of the way I thought about the Christian life. And then I went to seminary, and now I'm a professional, and uh, now I can pastor a church. <coughs> seminary taught me Greek and Hebrew and church history and how to put together a great sermon, and I got involved in church ministry, and the church was growing. But uh, there was this pebble in my shoe from my roots that said, are you making disciples or just doing church? And uh, by God's grace, Bill Hall would circle into my life a couple different seasons, and every time we'd come in, he'd, he'd kind of step on that pebble in my shoe, like, ah, oh, yeah, what am I doing? And uh, it finally hit a head for me when I was pastoring in Baltimore. I'm in a large, growing church, all the trappings of success, as Denny described, but I had this pebble in my shoe, this ache in my heart, this question, what, what are we doing? We're drawing a nice crowd, but what am I really doing? And God opened the opportunity to plant a church, and uh, that began our fresh recommitment to making disciples, and that's where the fun and the joy is. Let me just ask real quick, uh, just by show of hands, anybody in a crisis moment right now? Yeah. It's okay to say it because we, uh, I was. Um, but that leads me to kind of my next question. Um, we're going to start with Denny again. When we get into that crisis moment, what are the ways that we can respond either positively or negatively? Well, one way that I think we we have responded is we simply try to ignore it at first. And as you were saying, it uh, may begin to irritate and then we it may turn into a wound. We may try to deny it. But as I said, in my case, I became so desperate, uh, the joy in my life just, just emptied. There was no joy in my life at all. I mean, the reservoir was dry. And I came across a quote by Parker Palmer. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Parker Palmer, but he's from the, uh, uh, the Brethren, a uh, very contemplative uh, group of Christ followers. And he asked this question, is the life you're living the same as the life that wants to live in you? And I needed to reword it from where I was in my journey. And so I said to myself, Denny, is, is the life that you're living the life that Jesus wants to live in and through you? And the answer was absolutely not. And even though I was a successful pastor with a scorecard, that we, we have in North America. So I just, I, I couldn't ignore it. And so what I had to do, Dan, was I had to humble myself and acknowledge it and be transparent to the, the men in our church especially and ask for them to join me in a journey. And even though I had very little experience being in a discipling relationship and, and this is embarrassing, but let me just get it out there. What is wrong with this picture? I went four years to Bible college and four years to seminary, and I was never required to take a class, a course, a lab, or a seminar on the priority that Jesus has left for all of us, the mandate. What is wrong with that picture? Everything. <laughs> And so I began a journey with them because of an elective class that I found out about years and years earlier 
and just walking through the book of John, looking for characteristics of a, of a disciple. So we can ignore it, but sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with it. And thank God uh, that pebble got uh, strong enough that uh, I said, no matter what it costs, I don't care what I'm called here in terms of it. Uh, I don't have to be the senior pastor anymore. I just want to make disciples. Amen. So I'm, I'm the average guy, right? <laughs> so you're... Uh, <clears throat> Your response to stress, not all stress is bad stress, by the way. So we have good stress and bad stress. Bad stress is when you look in your rearview mirror and there's red flashing lights behind you and you've been going too fast because you pull over and you're stressed about it because it's going to cost you money and it's your fault. Okay. That's bad stress. You might as well just accept it and pay. Good stress is when the building's on fire and you're on the second floor and you got to jump out of a second floor window you would never jump out of. But you want to live, so you're going to jump out that window, right? That's good stress. Makes you do what you're not, you, you, you need to do. Well, to me, that's the way we respond to that. And I, I'll give you the short version. I almost got fired from my church. And uh, I, I remember when they came in and asked me to leave, which uh, was a unfortunate situation with some deacons that I always thought the pastor ought to leave at least every five years and get a new one. And they said, hey, I think, I think we need a change. And I said, you know, I think you're right, but I don't think it's me. <laughs> All right, so I'm going on vacation with my family next week, and we're supposed to take that vacation, and I'm not going to rob them of that, and I'm going to go. And when I get back, we'll talk about what, what we're, what we're going to do here. All right? So I left, and that was the best vacation of my life <laughs> because I left with this. I felt like when I got back, I was going to be let go from this church. And that was the most freeing thing I've ever done. Because I couldn't stop it. It wasn't my fault. And I was just relieved of it. I was like, I was talking to my wife. And I said, you know, there's nothing I can do about this. They're going to let me go. And I don't have to carry this anymore. And in my quiet time that week during the vacation, God said, Ed, I need you to help you understand something. This never was yours to carry. You should never have this on your plate. It's not your church. Wow. So I went back. And by the time I got back, the church was in an uproar because, you know, these people that want to do this kind of thing, they're they going to do this. All right. So I got up on Sunday morning and spoke to it because I was so aggravated they did it. I didn't know what to do. And I said, look, guys, here's the deal. And they, and they said, well, those deacons left because we asked what in the world could be a problem that we can't get through. And they thought we treated them rude, so they left. I said, okay. And they asked me to stay. And I already decided, hey, I'm gone. They're going to let me go. But they didn't let me go. I'm like, oh, wow, Lord, so i got to stay in all this I said, all right, here's what I'll do. We're starting over. And we're starting over from here. But I have to decide whether I have enough emotional energy to do this, guys, because we've been through the ringer. And we decided we would, and we would make disciples. Now, you got to understand, this guy didn't really know how to do that because he never was taught, did he? We didn't talk about it. But I said, we're going to struggle, but we're going to learn to struggle well. We're going to struggle well together, and we're going to make disciples. We started to grow, and it changed the whole spirit of the church because it wasn't mine to carry. 
I was just supposed to be making disciples. So one of the ways we can deal with it when the pebble gets in our shoes, we can make excuses. I've never been discipled. I knew that that was the thing that needed to happen. So I began to seek out a woman who was farther along in the faith than me, who would disciple me. I asked three or four people, and all of them said no. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wow. What, wow. what is wrong with me that nobody wants to disciple me? I have since figured out it wasn't me. It's what's wrong with them that they wouldn't bother to disciple. So I said, okay. I got a couple of things I can do here in this place. I can either just make excuses and go along status quo, or I can figure something else out. So I tell people, I was discipled by a bunch of old dead guys. A.W. Tozer, C.S. Lewis, uh, now past Dallas Willard, and the living Bill Hull. Because these are the people who I read. I read Ruth Healy Barton. I read... Uh, uh, Robert Mulholland. I read, I don't know, I read. I read everything I could read on discipleship and began to get discipled. Wayne Cordero uh, has a book called The Divine Mentor that was phenomenal in <coughs> discipling me because he talked about how we can be discipled by the, the greats in our faith. And so I determined that I would never let an excuse stop me again from finding out what God has. But I also determined that for as much as it depends on me, that will not happen to another woman. Because it's a hard, hard piece when you look at somebody and say, will you disciple me? And they say, no. That's a really hard place to be. It's an emotional place. It, it rocks your identity. And if you haven't been discipled and you're seeking that, you don't know who you are in Christ. You don't know. You don't know what you don't know in that place. And so, all that said, don't make excuses as to why you're not being discipled. Keep asking, or go find the old dead guys. <laughs> uh, when I was in Baltimore, the church was growing as a large church, and I knew that I was hitting a glass ceiling in my ministry, in my marriage, in my life. And uh, like a lot of pastors of large churches, I was, I didn't have any really close friends. Uh, I was friend and mentor to others, but who could I really confide in? So for me, uh, part of my discipleship journey was to seek out a, a counselor. And I found a therapist who was a burned out pastor who had gone into counseling. And uh, he did a wonderful job of helping me unpack uh, my life story and what were the things that I was carrying with me that were getting in the way of my ability to follow Christ with all my heart. And, uh, so sometimes uh, we have to seek uh, some other kind of help to get us through the barriers to our own discipleship. Amen. Uh, these are all great answers. What I wanted to do is uh, take a few minutes and answer questions that you guys might have about whether it's this pebble in your shoe, the, the, the next steps, or where do we go from here? Just any questions you have. Anybody uh, have them that want to raise your hand, shout out? Yes, sir. I'm just curious, the, I don't know how many pastors and church leaders are here, but I wonder what percent of them have been discipled themselves. Yeah, that's a uh, Repeat the question. He, he's asking uh, what percentage, uh, again, we can just do this real quick, how many... Pastors, church leaders, we got in the, in the house today. Okay, 
Out of you guys, how many of you were discipled intentionally? So it's probably half in this room, and that's probably way better than average. Way better. I was never discipled. I was, uh, you know, because I think when people hear, well, you went to Bible college. Yeah, it's like discipleship, right? You went four years of seminary. Yeah, I mean, it's like the same thing, right? We, we give excuses uh, for so many reasons why, but but you're right. And, and, and here's one of the big things, and I don't know if we're going to be even talking about this in one of our sessions. One of the big things for me is, I never, kind of like Cindy was saying, I don't ever want that to happen. I've got three guys that I'm actively discipling right now because I don't want them to ever say, no one discipled me. And I don't want to look at my church leaders and say, it's your job. If it ain't happening with me, why do I expect them to do it? Right. It needs to happen with the leaders. It can't be, you can't outsource discipleship in your churches. It's not a ministry, it's not a subset, it's not a program. It's a culture. It's Jesus' words. It's his mandate. It cannot simply be a category. It's the life of the church. It's not just being a disciple, but making them and making them to make others. It's the art of multiplication that Jesus had coined and, and, and championed, and we need to, to hold fast to that. But you're right. It's, I'll tell you what, I think when the statistics that I've seen, it's, it's like 10%. Wow. So if that's the case, what would be the game plan to disciple us? Well, that's, oh. whoa. <laughs> Repeat the question. He said, so if that's the case, what's the game plan to disciple us? Well, again, it depends on, well, I, this is something that I've learned as I've gone along. Everyone's a disciple. Of what is the question? Your church teaches discipleship across the board. But what are you a disciple of? You're a disciple of the pastor. You're a disciple of the denomination. You're a disciple of the philosophy of ministry. Are you a disciple of, I mean, you name it, that ministry? You, every single one of us is a disciple. I wasn't discipled. But as I, and again, I'm just, it's a shameless plug, I went through the Bonhoeffer Project and I learned what it meant to be a disciple. That's right. And doing that means that I am now actively being discipled by others around me because I have now invited them into that place. I need you to teach me. These people disciple me, right? It's, it, and I don't want to take the, un, the, the intentionality away from it, but the intentionality has to be on my part to be a disciple. It can't just be somebody else's job or role to do it if I haven't. You know, if somebody didn't do it for me, well, then it's not my fault. I'm absolved. It needs to be something that that, it, that is sought out by me. Yes. Sorry. No, As okay. a lay person, but I'm a ministry leader in my church. I don't understand how pastors cannot be discipled in Bible college. You're Bible students. You're all Christians. You run in the same circles. You're all taking the same Bible classes. And don't you talk among each other? I'll take that one. <laughs> Repeat your questions. Okay, she's saying uh, for, for those that are professionals, those that have been through Bible college and seminary and those sorts of things, I, I, she doesn't understand why you can't, you're not disciple makers because, hey, here's the whole deal because we got it wrong. We got it wrong. I worked for a seminary, uh, by the way, for five years, and you won't believe this, but we actually had to have an annual church certification process because our students weren't going to church. And we had to call them in and say, how do you, how do you 
going to ask someone to come and join together with you and worship with together the Lord that you're serving mm -hmm. if you're not going. <clears throat> well, I, I read all, I read during the week, I'm doing a seminary, I'm going to church. No, you're not. See, here's the deal, okay? So just so you know, if it had my way, when you go to seminary, you wouldn't work at a church. You would be filling in and filling up because the rest of your life you're pulled from. But you can't isolate like that. And we did. What we, we made it a transaction. We made it a business. We made it, you know, you talked about managing a CEO of a place. Yeah, we became a business instead of the business of discipleship, our mandate and our call. So I, w I was taught Greek. I was taught Hebrew. I was taught how to organize. I was taught we, we didn't have anything on discipleship. I had an evangelism class. But here's the thing that frustrated me about that. My evangelism professor won everybody he ever talked to to the Lord. Now, I know that's not true, because I've done it. And I thought, I must be the lousiest person in the world at this. I, I lead them through these things, and they're looking at me like, oh, man, you just need to get away from me. Because it was about reading a script and getting a transaction rather than it was about helping them discover the Jesus we knew. That's what happened. And, and Bonhoeffer helped me work through that. I wish all of you in the room could see this woman's emotion. Yeah. yeah. You're a little bit angry about this, aren't you? It doesn't make sense, does it? No, no. It doesn't make it any doesn't sense, make right? Any sense. Not a bit. No. Exactly. No, because, because, so I'm an attorney, right? In law school, the students talked among each other. We were discussing cases, right. preparing for tests. In Bible college, are you not praying together? You're not there for the money. You don't, I know you're not, like, you yeah. know, most pastors aren't six <laughs> men. Yeah. <laughs> you're there because God's called you to serve. You're there because, you know, in your heart, the Lord has led you. So it defies my logic how pastors can go through Bible college, yes. legitimate Christians, yes. and not disciple. I mean, you're running the same circles. You're talking among each other as any student in any college would. So is that not a form of discipleship if you're in small groups talking about your evangelism class, talking about your Old Testament? We've never, we, had, we were not taught the Jesus way of, of making disciples. Yeah. So transfer I, knowledge. We were, yes, we were downloaded with great information and, and obviously Bible classes, okay, that, that we needed to apply to ourselves. Yeah. But there, there, are not there are not people that would come, would require us to engage in a, relation, a relationship of, of making disciples. I was, I took so many preaching classes and we were critiqued, videotaped and so forth, which I, I understand that. But not once was I required to be supervised to know what it's like to be to, to disciple another person. I was never required that. So I just, I just wish you all could have seen it. She's going, what is wrong with this picture? <laughs> that's right. And you're right though. Yeah. Yes. So, you're right because that's, that's us, but we changed that. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I, my question is twofold. I don't know a lot about the Bonham Project, so we're in, we're in a national conference. So why, what do you do, and why should we subscribe to what you do? And you give us, are you just like, you know, we don't want to do that. I promise I didn't put them up to that. <laughs> That's what it is. Let me explain this to you. I want to use um, an illustration, if I could. To answer your question, again, I'm not just 
walking away from me. Um, this is something that just, it, it dawned on me the other day. This is what most of y'all are here for. And I'm not, I'm not putting you down for it because this is what we've learned. We are looking for the plug and play method of discipleship. We want to clip it on to whatever we're doing. It's got a plug, it's got the right outlet, it fits what we're doing. We plug it in, the light turns on, set it, forget it. All right, we got it. And so what we do is we look at this as the church and we look at this as the new program that we started. Oh, look at it, it's shiny, it's black, it's LEDs, oh, you could change them, warm a lot, you know. We get that this is what ministry looks like these days. This is what you're taught in Bible college, how to do church. And in church, you got to set up ministries. And this is our new ministry called discipleship. That is not what we do. There are many organizations here that offer these. And we're not saying they're bad because they offer a great curriculum, offer great options for you to learn who Jesus is, what he said, how to be a disciple. What the Bonhoeffer Project does is it gets rid of this method of plug and play because Jesus didn't do plug and play. He called disciples from fishermen. He called some attorneys. He called some tax guys. He called guys who, who didn't fit the mold. And so what the Bonhoeffer Project does is we give you the tools. So there's a lamp base. We've got several lampshades we can hook you up with. There's another lampshade. It might fit your context. Maybe you like a hanging lamp. I went to the store. And we will give you the tools for how you can make disciples in your context. Because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Because if you do this, it's just another program in your church that's going to die next year. It's something that you start, you get everybody hopped up, you have a big launch, there's balloons. <laughs> Somebody gets excited. you got a hype man that gets up front, starts dancing around, saying, man, aren't y'all excited about our new discipleship? And then in a year, no one knows what you're talking about anymore. And the t-shirt, that's right, t-shirt, launch dates. The Bonhoeffer Project, we put you into a cohort. Cohort is a group, six to 12 people. We put you into that group. We spend 10 months with you examining the gospel you preach, examining definitions. What is a disciple? How do you know when you made one? How do you know you're being successful at it? How do you test that fruit? And go all the way into helping you to develop a disciple-making plan that can use any one of the different curriculum you find here today. So we don't call ourselves, like we're not a, a curriculum-based thing. We are calling you to examine the gospel, examine discipleship, Go upstream from, and we'll talk about this in session two, what is that upstream and why is that so important? But it is really to help you to develop a plan for your context. It could be youth ministry, it could be children's ministry, it could be international context, you could be leading a whole church, you could be a lay person and an attorney. How do you in your context make the disciples that Jesus has called you to make? That is what the Bonhoeffer Project does and that's what we hope that you will get more information for Talk to each one of us individually. We are all out here to do that for you. That's our whole goal. Yeah, let's close this out. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for this time, for these great people. God, would you minister to them uh, according to your will and your word. Thank you so much for this time. Bless them on their way. Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for coming.
that was awesome stuff from the Bonhoeffer Project. Just want to say I really, really appreciate their transparency and their authenticity when talking about discipleship and the lack thereof in their own upbringing, which is similar to my own story. Hope that you can appreciate that. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want to go check out the discipleship.org slash collective, you can sign up for a free account today and you can hear more teachings like this live on the collective. It's really cool. So check that out. All right, y'all have a great day and I'll see you on the next episode.